Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of The Carving Tour. I'm your host, Naeem Merchant, and this is a podcast about the policies, technologies, and collective action needed to remove billions of tons of carbon dioxide from the atmosphere and fend off the worst effects of climate change. I'm excited to restart the podcast after taking a few months off and get back to profiling the amazing work being done by people committed to building and shaping an exciting new industry that will be critical to combating climate change in the decades to come. Before I get into the show, I want to talk about a new venture I'm leading. It's called Carbon Removal Canada, and it's a climate policy initiative dedicated to advancing inclusive policies and innovations to make Canada a global leader in scaling carbon removal. In my view, Canada has all the right ingredients to build a thriving carbon removal economy, all while greatly contributing to the global ambition of reaching gigaton-scale carbon removal. What's needed is an independent group to shape the policies and organize the ecosystem to accelerate impact. And that's what Carbon Removal Canada intends to do. We're still early in our formation, and we're spending time speaking to stakeholders to inform our strategy and theory of change. But we're also looking for dedicated Canadians now to help build this new initiative with us towards an official launch later this year. So if you'd like to get involved, we're hiring for roles in government relations, policy, and communications. You can learn more at carbonremoval.ca. One more thing before we get to the show. In taking on this new role, I'll have less time to independently dedicate to this podcast. Luckily, the amazing Lucia Simonelli has offered to support the production and execution of this podcast going forward. Lucia is a senior climate researcher for Giving Green. Before joining Giving Green, Lucia was a senior policy fellow at Carbon 180, where she specialized in federal policy for direct air capture and other carbon removal pathways. She also served as a AAAS Science and Technology Policy Fellow in the office of Senator Sheldon Whitehouse, working on climate initiatives. Her involvement in the podcast will add a lot of depth and insight, and I'm really grateful to have her on board as we move to our new bi-weekly release schedule. So I'm excited about today's episode because it covers a question I've been wrestling with for a long time. How do we evaluate the potential of long-duration carbon removal solutions when there are so few projects out there? Whether it's corporates trying to decide what to buy or policymakers trying to understand what carbon removal innovations to support, there are very few reasonably independent resources to understand the potential of emerging carbon removal methods. My guest today has wrestled with that same question for some time now and leads a team that has done some excellent research and produced valuable knowledge products that help us understand questions around quality and potential scalability as it relates to novel, long-duration methods of carbon removal. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to your favorite podcast app. And if you'd like to get in touch, shoot me an email at naeem at carboncurve.co. I hope you enjoy the show. Hi, everyone. Today's guest is Ted Christie Miller from B Zero Carbon. B-Zero Carbon is a ratings agency for the voluntary carbon market. Combining expertise across climate science, finance, and policy, it provides ratings, risk, and data tools that improve information accessibility and decision-making. Its aim is to build markets for environmental impact. Ted joined B-Zero in October 2021 to lead the carbon removal team. And before joining B-Zero Carbon, he founded and led the Cross-Party Getting to Zero Climate Policy Program at the think tank Onward. He regularly writes in the national media on topics of climate and carbon markets, including for The Times, The Telegraph, City AM, Carbon Pulse, and Business Green. Previous research he's done has been cited in a series of UK government reports, 
including the Net Zero Review and the Leveling Up White Paper. Ted, welcome to the show. It's good to have you on. Thanks, Armiel. Before we get into talking about the scalability assessment that B0 Carbon has done, tell me more about B0 and what your role is in the company and why long duration CDR is strategically important to B0. Yeah, of course. So B0 Carbon is a global carbon ratings agency. And the reasoning for the company being set up two and a half years ago was really to fix this key market failure in the voluntary carbon market, which was this lack of correlation between price and quality in the market. And the company itself is really modeled off how S&P and Moody's operate in financial markets, but for the voluntary carbon market. Uh, and today we've got over half of the voluntary carbon market covered with a rating. And we, as I said, we, we broached the whole market. So that's everything from you know, avoided deforestation to renewables through to direct air capture and biochar as well. And our team within the company is the carbon removal team. And by that, we really mean the engineered carbon removal team. And it's a set of research ratings and partnerships within that sector. So on the on the ratings side of things, you know, we're we're really eager to be doing these engineered carbon removal ratings, but we do ex post ratings. So that means retirable credits. And so there's not a lot of engineered CDR on the market at the moment. So we're sort of working on some biochar ratings at the moment, but actually very few projects currently fit our eligibility criteria of the transparency we need. So big part of my job is sort of reaching out to developers and getting them to publicize data so we can get those ratings done. And then alongside that, our team does a lot of thought leadership and R&D work, and we've launched a number of reports over the last year, looking at things like the commercial case for investing in engineered carbon removal. I did a policy report focused on the UK just before Christmas, I've done a big, big report on the state of the carbon removal market. And then most recently, as we're going to discuss today, we developed a first of its kind scalability assessment for engineered carbon removal. So yeah, that's kind of where we sit within the company. And I think it's a really important element of the organization because strategically, you know, our top-down analysis shows that there is going to be this transition away from avoidance to removals in the market. At the moment, it's less than 10% of the voluntary carbon market is carbon removals. And that is mostly 99% of that small amount is ARR, so afforestation and reforestation. What we're going to see, I think, is a real influx of of engineered carbon removal credits over the next decade. And what we want to be as an organization is ready to deal with that growth and have the best in-house expertise to rate those credits. Yeah, that sounds great. And thinking back to some of the reports you've done over the last year or so, we'll get those in the show notes, but there's definitely been a lot of thought leadership from you all around the voluntary carbon markets and how to make that operate better. The scalability assessment seems really strongly linked to your emphasis of long duration CDRs, I call it, or you could call it engineered CDR. Why did you decide to assess the scalability of carbon removal methods? And why do you think that's important? It's an interesting question in the market itself, you know, within the carbon removal market that you and I so, so often function within. Scalability is you know, the sort of the zeitgeist word that everyone talks about. And so it's, it was steadily building up the agenda. And the way in which our thinking kind of gravitated was that originally what we were looking at is how to do carbon ratings on a project level for some of these engineered carbon removal methods. Um, and there were sort of a number of reasons that I won't bore you with now, but that actually the, the inbuilt risk of some of those meant a credit rating as such was not going to be feasible. 
So there was sort of an element of that demand for those, those ex-ante ratings and the inability on current available data to fulfill that demand. And we thought, okay, so back to the drawing board, what can we do to fulfill some of that? And then it looked at the state of the market and what the key problems were. And obviously, as we know, we need to move from the tens of thousands of carbon removed every year by engineered removals up to the billions. And this is one of the steepest innovation curves in history. So we've got you know, a crucial climate necessity to get this done. And practically, it is just a mind-boggling innovation challenge. And so at the very least, we need to understand what some of these barriers to scaling are. And that's you know not just as a ratings agency, not just as the sector, but really for the people that are really going to shift this, those investors, those policymakers, understanding the nuances of scalability in the sector is really going to be crucial. Yeah. And if I'm understanding you correctly, it seems like because you're primarily focused in terms of your ratings work on ex-post credits, so retired credits, this allows you to apply your thinking and your expertise on a space that is going to be basically almost entirely ex-ante credits by thinking about the scalability potential and barriers and opportunities associated with different carbon removal methods. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, that is a core part of it. You know, a lot of my job, I get called up by investors or by venture capital people that are really interested in this space, but really don't know the first thing about how to dig underneath it. And we're quite uniquely placed, I think, as an organization, you know, we don't really have a dog in this fight. We are a third party. I personally obviously want to help scale this market, but we're not a developer. We're not really going to favor direct air capture over BEX, or we're not going to favor biochar over enhanced weathering. We don't have a view. We are really just presenting data. So I think it was just a, an interesting opportunity for us to, to dig underneath some of these themes. Yeah, and related to that, how did you decide which CDR methods to assess? And why did you choose them? Yeah, so within the market, I suppose there are many different subsectors or methods we could have gone down the route of. In simple terms, you know, we had to start with some for a framework. At this point, that the framework is going to be updated on an annual basis. So it's a live piece of research, and that will include just any new literature that's brought to light. We will update the methods already, but then we will also explore adding new methods to the framework as well. But beyond that, we chose these because they had the most data and the most literature in the public domain that meant we could use that for the assessment. So a really important thing for us is that we use publicly available information. And so that was a core part of it. Another point to note is that it, these five methods are the vast majority of the current carbon removal market when you look at the sales. So more than 90%. So we thought it would cover a lot of the key demand that we were looking to fulfill. So take us through how you developed your methodology to assess scalability of these different CDR methods and how might this methodology or framework differ from some of the assessments that might be used by groups like XPRIZE or Frontier? It was a really interesting process. So just to give you an idea, my background is in the policy world. I've worked in a think tank, creating long policy reports to lobby government on changing things. And we did quite a lot of quant and qual assessment in that. But developing a new qualitative assessment framework like this was something really new for us. So it was a really exciting challenge to get our teeth into. And it was the first assessment framework we had created since the original B0 carbon ratings. So it was quite an exciting proposition as well. And we had experts in-house that really helped guide us on that. So we've got our director of ratings and our president who um, was 
CEO of Moody's Analytics. So really in the sort of traditional ratings world, he's a real expert. So you know, I won't take too much credit for the process, but he very much uh, guided the way on this. But primarily, I suppose, it was sort of two key development stages. So the first was a really extensive literature review of all of the different assessment models and all of the different research in this space to try and unpick really what some of those key assessment factors might be and to put together that qualitative assessment framework, which we call a qualitative rubric. And then after that, we did a number of internal and external workshops. So we did some meetings with developers, a number of users of our platform as well, and did some internal workshops with the research team, the ratings team. And then finally, we had a formal scalability committee. So this is the same process we have for the ratings. We have a ratings committee and the scalability committee has to sign off on each judgment. It's quite a grueling sort of two hour process where you get thrown questions by some of the real experts in the field. So it really makes sure that you are following the process and getting these judgments right to the best of your ability. So that was kind of the way in which we approached building it, how it's different to some other similar, I suppose, models, like looking at Frontier and Enterprise, for instance, the way in which, as far as I understand it, they build there is it's almost like a kind of criteria to be fulfilled for then a project to be considered for investment is sort of my, my general understanding. So for us, we're giving it essentially what is a kind of rating, so an assessment of the scalability across a number of different universal factors, is what we call them. And so we're answering a question, what are the relative barriers to scaling for X method, for instance? And we then do that qualitative assessment on each risk factor. So it is just a, a different process to to what's out there so far, as far as I understand it, those ones you mentioned are more kind of, this is that your barrier to entry, can you fit it? But with you know, some of those, there is some overlap within what they look for and what assessment factors we used. To what extent were assessment factors associated with maybe analogs with other emerging technologies like solar or wind or batteries that have scaled or are scaling pretty successfully? in developing this assessment? How relevant was all of that? Yeah, it was really useful to look at. And I think my background in research, we used a lot in both when I was in the policy world, but also in the research we've done at B0, is plotting the, um, the scaling potential of some of these methods you mentioned. So particularly looking at things like solar PV, electric vehicles, offshore wind, you know, all of these things were really useful examples to look at. And I think solar in particular, it's a well-known innovation journey that everyone's trying to emulate for a number of different products. But I think when you look at that, there is a, a real overlap with some of the things we're looking at. So particularly, you know, the policy role was crucial, the finance role, the value chains was important, you know, other resources as well. All of these factors came into play when looking at how we scaled solar to where we are today. And so I think it was a really useful example to use. And in some of our past research, we actually, you know, actively used it in, in the research. And I think for some specific factors, there was also good parallels to be done. So for instance, I don't know if this is quite to the same level in the US, but in the UK, it's an onshore wind and, and nuclear, for instance, have experienced, you know, limitations around what we call as localized impacts, which, you know, for the purpose of this exercise is really trying to maintain public support for it. And there was a real problem with that kind of nimbyism issue in the UK for those methods. And so I think that was an interesting parallel to pull when then looking at 
the potential localized impacts of, let's say, bioenergy with carbon capture and storage. I'm really a fan of this approach that tries to look at scalability challenges across CDR methods, as opposed to pick apart challenges, you know, on a project by project basis. But I imagine that there's still some challenges in kind of assessing the scalability of CDR methods. You know, a couple occurred to me just off the bat. One of them is, you know, public perception, right? Like you just talked about public perception. Those challenges are pretty localized. Another one is just, you know, when we start getting a little more granular around the methods. So for example, different approaches to direct air capture are going to require different amounts of thermal energy to operate effectively. And so how do you go about assessing and navigating some of those challenges in figuring out the scalability of these different CDR methods? Yeah, you identified some some real real challenges there when we were doing the analysis. So we actually published a introductory report back in November that really outlined the challenges to this assessment. So if anyone's interested, um, do have a dig through the Bezo website and have a read. But in short, the first one really is the uncertain futures element of this. So we're talking about, you know, how can we scale X method to gigaton scale by 2050? This is an enormous challenge. And the nuances of them mean that what that world looks like in 2050 will have a huge impact on how scalable a certain method is. So just as an example, energy mix, uh, emissions trajectories, potential population growth, you know, these things are really important factors to look at. For instance, if you have a very, very high population growth, you'll have huge competition for land, for food, for energy and the rest of it. So thinking about you know, those methods that have a higher barrier when it comes to land, such as those biomass-based solutions like bioenergy, carbon capture and storage and biochar, you know, that will be a critical factor. You know, in the inverse, you might get a situation where there's very low population growth and the energy mix goes completely, I don't know, maybe it's very intense fossil fuel, for instance, in 2050. And then direct air capture has some challenges around there. So that that element of that uncertain future is just an inbuilt issue when you're trying to assess the scalability of these things. And that's why for us, it's not an absolute measure. What we're doing here is a relative assessment. So we're comparing these methods against each other when it comes to looking at these assessment factors. And that was a core part in our reasoning is because of that uncertain future. On your point around methods, well, sort of project differentiation, this is a real challenge to overcome because even each method is wildly different. So if you could try and compare a biochar to direct air capture on the same framework, you know, this is a challenge in and of itself. And then when you dive into a method and you look at different projects, say comparing Sestera with carbon engineering, for instance, you know, they're two direct air capture companies. They have wildly different methods to them. So it was something we had to overcome and all of the data in the literature underlying our reasoning and all of our qualitative assessment that it's based on is all on the Zero platform. So you can sort of see how we came to it and see all the numbers that we used. That sort of transparency point was really important. But as you identified, it's a challenge. And ideally what we'd be able to do is do re ratings for these projects on a project basis. And then you really start to unpick some of the nuances underneath them. But, you know, on current available information, it's just not feasibly possible at the moment. On your point on public perceptions. I think it's an interesting one to pick up on. I think, you know, this actually was outlined in, in the state of CDR report that was released in January as well. There is quite a lot of academic literature that illuminates 
some of the public perception issues with, let's say, bioenergy with carbon capture and storage, but there is also real information risk with others. And that was a, a real issue when we actually went to the committee stage for this. And it actually changed one of our judgments when we sort of really hit the tires with it. Because of the fact that it is looking at it on a method basis, making such an assumption about all of the developers at play when there is such a difference was something that actually did then edit that judgment. Yeah, that's a tricky one. I feel like the public perception piece around the scalability of CDR methods um, is going to be a really important one. And there has been an increasing amount of literature around this. I just saw something evaluating kind of public perception around direct air capture in the Pacific Northwest that I thought had some pretty interesting findings. And you see pretty interesting themes across the board, but I don't think until we really start deploying some of these CDR methods in practice, are we really going to fully understand some of the challenges around public perception, public awareness, community benefits, these sorts of things that right now are still very abstract because like you said, this is a nascent industry and some CDR methods far more nascent than others. So it's something we need to keep an eye on. Shifting over to some of your findings, what would you say are two to three kind of big takeaways uh, from those findings and what surprised you the most? It's hard to give you two or three, but I'll give it a go. So I think what surprised me, I think, was with biochar in particular, it had consistently across the board some of the lowest relative barriers to scaling. If you look at things like energy factor, look at the finance factor, policy, for instance, ancillary value chains, the MRV readiness, it did, when compared to some of these methods, really lower barriers. And I think it's in essence because it is just further along the innovation curve than some of these. That is definitely an element of it. But I think the scale at which it had, the difference really was more stark than I thought it would be. On the other side of the spectrum, ocean alkalinity enhancement as some of the, the highest relative barriers to scaling. This wasn't probably wholly surprising for me. I think it's probably in reading I've done before was thought to an extent it would be more challenging in places, but particularly the challenges on MRV readiness and policy environment were particularly interesting. Like I didn't quite realize the limitations that there were on a policy level for ocean alkalinity enhancement. And so I think that was really brought to light in this assessment. And then you know, the two that most talked about by policymakers and investors in you know, bioenergy, carbon capture and storage and direct air capture. I think it was really interesting just looking at them side by side and they've really got very different barriers, but end up actually, when you sort of look at the assessment as a whole, they have similar uh, sort of overall scores on some of these things, but they're sort of really the inverse. And actually it comes back to my point around the uncertain future that element will really dictate how scalable each of those methods are. So yeah, I mean, it's, it was a really interesting piece of work to do and sort of illuminated a number of things, but I think they're probably my key highlights. Did the assessment itself make you particularly excited about the potential of one CDR method or pessimistic? I think I probably alluded to it a bit in my last answer, but I think that near-term potential of biochar was particularly interesting to see. And then, you know, those obstacles facing ocean alkalinity, particularly challenging. I think, you know, especially for that latter method, a lot needs to be figured out before this method will come to market in a big way. Who is the audience for this scalability assessment and how do you hope it's going to be used going forward? Yeah, so I think we see it really as twofold. So 
on the one hand, policymakers, on the other, investors. And the purpose is for them to be able to identify really what some of those barriers are, yes, but also what some of those opportunities are as well. So just to give you an example, you know, for policy, for instance, if you see that monitoring, reporting and verification, MRV, is a particular challenge for ocean alkalinity enhancement, for instance, you know, it means that as a policymaker, you can put together moves to relax some of those international regulations on ocean alkalinity. Just as an example, investors, for instance, you could look at this framework and unpick some of the numbers that, that show that finance is a particular barrier for direct air capture. And you could then look at the ways to try and bring down that cost curve for some projects that are in your jurisdiction. For the policymakers, I think they are going to be so pivotal in making sure we reach what we're trying to reach. And so I think for them, it's been particularly interesting. And I've been engaging with someone on the UK level from my contacts, from my old career, and it's been really well received. And I think for them, trying to understand some of these limitations, because at the moment, there's just so little out there that, that allows you to evaluate this. This sort of is first thing that allows you to look at that scalability has been particularly useful for them. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. I mean, you know, I think a sober look at some of the potential barriers to scale, as well as opportunities for scale across these CDR methods, is going to be really important, especially for policymakers. Because what I worry about is folks thinking about carbon removal as some kind of silver bullet for addressing the climate challenges. And I think the more information we can get to policymakers about, hey, here are the risks associated with different CDR methods, or here are the constraints to scaling up different CDR methods, that's going to be really important because what we want to avoid doing is having a situation where policymakers didn't understand the full extent of the challenges and opportunities with different technologies, and then they're totally blindsided when things don't work out as planned. And that's a big fear I have about the CDR space in general. And so the more information that we can get out there, not just the good news and not just the potential opportunities, but also the barriers to scale and some of the risks are going to be really important for policymakers to make informed decisions. And I think investors to make informed decisions as well. And you touched on this in your last answer, but I'm wondering if there were any specific policy interventions or market interventions that really came to mind for you as you went through this process that could maybe help overcome some of these barriers to scale. What would that potentially look like? And I know that differs by CDR method, but anything that really rose to the surface for you? Yeah, it's a really interesting question. Now, also need to put on my think tank hat again and come up with the policy recommendations. But I think on a broader level, you know, we're seeing in the UK, a lot of companies that are actively thinking about leaving the UK and in some respects, the EU to go to the US. And that is almost entirely because of the incentives put together by the Inflation Reduction Act. And I think from a national perspective, that is a really sad thing to be happening. And so I've speaking to people, government trying to inject some urgency into this. But I think some kind of way of, you know, we're never going to match what the Inflation Reduction Act did. It's, you know, we don't have that kind of level of funding to deal with, but some way of trying to create a really friendly environment for businesses and for carbon removal developers to innovate in this country and to then use that as an export opportunity. I think I don't have exactly the answer to that, but I think for the Inflation Reduction Act, the simplicity of it was really attractive for investors. And the UK is not very good at making very direct, simple offers as policy incentives. So I think 
any way that we can try and replicate that would be really useful. I know the EU have done their rebuttal to the Inflation Reduction Act in recent weeks, but I think similarly, the lack of clarity and the lack of specificity meant that we're not going to be able to attract those companies in Europe as are being attracted in, in the US. So long-winded answer there, but I think just sadly, it's some clear and well-funded incentives by the UK and EU are really desperately needed. On a market intervention side of things, I suppose from my businesses, what I'd like to see in investors, I really think some of the two key bottlenecks are monitoring, reporting, verification, but largely across the board, but particularly on some of these ones, enhanced weathering, ocean alkalinity enhancement. I really think developing some of those systems to deal with MRV would be really, really desirable. And then for some of the ones that are twin geological storage, that transportation storage element, especially for direct air capture and for bioenergy carbon capture and storage. For those two methods, we really need to sort out some good infrastructure there to make sure that we are removing that in the air, but we have somewhere to put it as well. So yeah, I implore, I always implore investors to go after those two areas. Yeah, it definitely doesn't get the attention it really needs. So what's next for B0's carbon removal work? And what other CDR methods or other priorities will you be trying to assess beyond scalability? Yeah, so we've got a piece of research coming up that is a follow-on from this. So it's, what well, I think we're probably going to call it scalability in practice, but it's doing some deep dives into some of these methods and to some of these universal factors and actually practical terms, just showing how this assessment framework can be used. So do look out for that. Hopefully it'll sort of add a bit more clarity to, to how we're tackling this. Beyond that, there's a number of different sort of smaller research pieces we've got coming out in our team, doing a big piece of work with some external partners on insurance, monitoring, reporting, verification, and ratings, and how we see them as sort of three key tenets to scaling the carbon removal market. We're also expecting to be able to do some biochar ratings in the near term, and we're also doing a biochar deep dive report, which I think by the time this comes out will hopefully already be public. So definitely have a look at that. And then the one that is probably most similar to this scalability assessment is we're doing a durability assessment that is going to be combined with this. So that'll be later in the year and we'll be looking at, at the durability of a number of different carbon removal methods and storage peaks. And, you know, I think ideally what we will then want to be able to do is look at scalability and durability and it'll give you some good clarity on some of these methods. This all sounds really interesting and thank you for this important contribution to the CDR space. And I look forward to seeing what else comes following this and that it serves as a valuable tool to policymakers and investors. So thank you for that. My last question is, how do people get in touch? How do people learn more about the work you're doing? Yeah, so LinkedIn, Twitter, my DMs always open if you're looking to reach out to me. Otherwise, on email, just carbon removal team at zerocarbon.com. Always happy to chat to people. And uh, Naim, just want to say big fan of the pod and of the newsletter. So it's an honor to be on. And yeah, thanks very much for having me. Thanks so much for being on, Ted. I really appreciate your time.